You're listening to the EVs for Everyone podcast. My name is Elena Ciccatelli, an award-winning automotive executive, and I'm so excited to introduce you to some of the most dynamic thought leaders the EV economy has to offer. Listen in on honest conversations I have with the leading electric vehicle experts and uncover critical insights that will help you jump ahead and stay there. The electrification race is officially on, and these conversations have never been more important. So whether you're an automotive executive or just an EV enthusiast, this is the podcast for you. Let's get started. Alex, how are you today? How are you this morning? I know you're in California. I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited for our conversation today because you are a wealth of knowledge in the electrification EV space and also in the startup world and the clean tech world. So I would love for you to bring the listeners up to speed, talk a little bit about your background and, of course, how you got to where you are today. Sure. And again, thank you so much for having me. You know, I grew up in what you and I might call like just being a car nut. I grew up about two miles down the street from an automotive stamping facility. And I think that was my first exposure to like there is a process behind the building of cars. And so as a youth, I um, was just really interested in cars in maybe a way that even was more notable than other young kids. And that continued to manifest itself throughout my professional career. So when I was in college at a time when a lot of folks were maybe looking to go work, you know, an intern at a software company or whatever, I did my college internship at a car company that was then called Chrysler. And that was maybe the beginning of me working in the industry. I've always loved it because it's this real big connector for people. It's how we get to work. It's how we get to education. It's how we, you know, see our family members is all these choices we make about mobility and how we get around. And it's this insanely complex mix of very pragmatic things, you know, what's the most reliable car and or transportation solution, but also really emotional decisions. That car looks ugly. I like that paint job, you know, whatever else it is that sort of is on that spectrum of how we make these both rational and emotional decisions about how we get around. And so that led me to working at Toyota for a stint, working in a lot of sort of central functions for Toyota. And deeply grateful for sort of having my real baptism by fire in the car industry at a company that's known for being really intentional about processes and systems and how you go about the process of doing R&D, manufacturing and sales and marketing. And that was also the period, though, where I started getting really tuned into the climate impacts of of some of the mobility choices we make. I'm a data-driven individual and... I don't think you can believe in things like your sales results, uh, you know, a profit and loss statement or whatever else, and not give that same data credence to climate scientists who sort of are telling us, hey, there's sort of this unhealthy relationship between mobility and our climate. You know, obviously, nobody second guesses the benefits of mobility in terms of giving people access to economic opportunity, healthcare, education, et cetera. But, you know, we do have to admit that some of the choices we make around how we move are having some pretty big climate impacts. So I spent about the last 15 years of my life working on how do we keep getting people and goods moving around cities and around the planet, but without creating a lot of negative environmental impacts. So I left Toyota and I worked for an EV startup in what we would now call Cleantech 1.0 that was called Kona Automotive. I was with them for a while. And then I worked for the World Economic Forum, doing a lot of pre-competitive research on sustainable mobility. More recently, I was working for what was then a French car company called Peugeot and is now called Stellantis. 
on a lot of their work on electrification. And then for the last just about five years, I've worked for Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, which is a nonprofit clean tech incubator and investor in the clean tech space. And about 40% or so of our portfolio is in the vehicle electrification space, everything from EV retrofits to EV charging technologies, battery solutions, sort of you name it, the full gamut of folks working on sort of sustainable mobility. We were chatting prior to us recording an episode today, and you'd mentioned, so you were at Toyota, and you were there when they first launched the Prius. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, or the second gen Prius, which is sort of the one that everybody really remembers, that iconic vehicle, which is still you see all around the streets uh, in in the US and in Europe and Japan. And I I think for me, the Prius was a, a realization moment for myself where I said, look, if we can put a small battery in a car and help some of our environmental issues, why can't we put a much larger battery in a car? And I do think the Prius was a helpful stepping stone for the industry to realize some of those benefits. Maybe not as big of a stepping stone as something like the Tesla Roadster, where people go, oh my gosh, you just put a giant bank of batteries in a Lotus Roadster and you know have a car that has zero emissions. So I'm really grateful for the insights of the sort of stepping stone of the Prius. But the fact that somebody like Elon Musk really took that to the extreme and said, I'm going to just literally create a company that's built on fully, fully electric. So yeah, I'm really grateful for having had some experience with what Toyota is doing at the Prius, but also really grateful for the fact that I think Elon Musk said, hey, I'm going to just electrify everything. And you know, sort of, I, I would argue Elon Musk probably brought forward the electrification process of cars by like a decade with his more, more radical approach. Well, I think in a lot of ways, the Prius, if you think back, the Prius was like the OG, right? I mean, if you think you, you know, you see the the different Priuses on the road still to this day, and that was the one where it was, you know, the light bulb went off. So I think that's actually a good segue talking about affordability. This whole conversation around EV affordability, just vehicle affordability in general. But I feel like, Alex, you would be a great person to ask this question to, and that is, where or what do you see on the horizon in terms of EV affordability for more of a mainstream customer and not just this EV being this luxury niche product? What do you see on the horizon there? Great question that obviously has been sort of the Achilles heel of this transition so far is that most of the products on the market have really been in that luxury premium category that were out of reach for so many people. And in fact, in some ways, probably gave some people like a little bit of distaste because they're like, well, I can't see myself in a car that expensive. So EVs aren't for me. And that's not the message that I think the industry wanted to send. The good news is that basically car manufacturers go through a process of long-term product planning. You know, it's roughly a 10-year calendar. And so car companies can't shift on a dime and all of a sudden say, hey, this this product that was gasoline powered, we can just make that battery powered you know, tomorrow. That's sort of got to be whenever that product cadence is of the product refresh. But we're now getting to a point where most of the product refreshes that are happening, the new vehicle launches that are happening this year, next year, the year after, will all involve you know, either an alternative that is fully battery electric or at least plug-in hybrid. And so we're now starting to see we're getting so much better in terms of having a product that is more price acceptable. So, you know, if you look at average transaction prices in Q1, they were on the order of like actually pretty high, $45,000, $46,000. So the average new car is like quite expensive in my mind, especially as you think of an average household income. 
probably closer to like, you know, 80K. We're talking about, you know, an average car now costs more than half a year's person average salary. And that's inclusive of electric and gasoline powered. But Tesla's had five price cuts on the Model Y this year so far. And so that the Model Y base price is now just about $41,000, $4,200,000. So you're talking like $4,000 below the average transaction price. So like we're now at that point where the Model Y, the base level, you go, okay, that's below the average transaction price. And you do have more value-oriented EVs like the Chevy Bolt and the Nissan Leaf. But we've also got to acknowledge and not pretend that we have every market segment covered and every party, everybody's sort of desires. So I'm looking forward to sort of in each of the respective categories that you think of that player that will sort of pierce the market first, likely with a premium product and then a more affordable one. So like the big watershed moment, I think last year was the Ford F-150 electric, also the Rivian electric truck. But, you know, that's sort of now, okay, now we have pickup trucks. Yes, they're expensive electric pickup trucks. But by the way, so is a regular Ford F-50. It's pretty expensive. And, you know, we've even got a Dodge Challenger muscle car coming relatively soon. That'll be a product segment that hasn't had an EV yet. So, you know, long answer to your question is, I think we're getting there, but it would be definitely sort of dismissive of the industry to not realize that in a lot of locations, for a lot of consumers from an income perspective, if they live in a rural community, access to charging might be difficult. If they live in a multi-tenant household, whether that's an apartment or a condo, access to charging might be difficult. So even once we get the price points where we need to be, which again, more work needs to be done, there's a lot of other things around the overall equation that needs to be done to make that EV transition feel superior for people from what they were driving before. Because we're not there yet. We're only there for some use cases, some consumers, et cetera. No, you're right. And I think it is some use cases, some consumers, we do still have a long way to go. What are your thoughts on some of the new federal tax incentives now for EVs? I know we just had a whole switcheroo happen last week, right? Last week was tax week. So your thoughts on, do you think that's going to bring more people into the market, entice more people, or just confuse people because they don't know what they qualify for because it's just a big old cluster? What are your thoughts on that, Alex? Well, it's definitely the actual Inflation Reduction Act, the way the tax credit worked, you know, sort of at the outline in the big picture in, in the Inflation Reduction Act bill itself, I thought was a really smart blend of like economic policy and industrial policy. Because what it did for the first time was really link that tax credit to domestic content. I applaud the Biden administration for acknowledging that we can't build this electrification approach to transportation if we don't have pretty significant amounts of battery R&D and manufacturing and even up to the mineral stream happening either domestically or with our trade allies. You know, we all lived through the moments of COVID of shortages of various products and, and services. And partly that was driven by a pretty long supply chain that often originates in China and at port blockages at the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, et cetera. And if we don't have that resilient supply chain domestically, we run the risk of somebody else sort of metaphorically and literally pulling the plug on our battery ambitions. So I thought the design was was smart of saying, look, we're going to make it tough but achievable to get the tax credit. And you as the car manufacturers, the battery manufacturers, you're going to have to nearshore stuff. Um, so I thought the actual bill itself was quite astute. Implementation has been really difficult. You know, the communication and the concern about really clarifying what qualifies, what doesn't. You know, even last week you had a couple of, I believe VW and Rivian weren't in the initial list posted by the government, and then they were sort of later additions. 
And so it feels a little bit like the rules are still being clarified to agree where anybody can actually just look up online. And I'm talking about an automaker would be able to predetermine for themselves whether they would be able to make the list. So I think we have more refining to do, one, to make it easier for automakers to understand under what conditions would be actually qualifying, what counts when you get down to the, the nitty gritty. And then to your point, much more important than the automakers understanding the process is really making it simple and understandable for consumers so that anybody who's purchasing a car can understand. I think what everybody just needs to appreciate about that process is you know, last week's clarification of the feds wasn't the end of that process. It was really more the beginning of that process. Now this requires a lot of work by everybody from automotive dealers, car manufacturers, trade bodies, et cetera, to really help consumers understand this process. Because yeah, it, it's still not the easiest process to get through. In a lot of ways, you're right. This is the beginning and this chapter is still being written. And it's, I think, from my point of view, where I'm kind of, you know, sitting and observing all of these different stakeholders, it's certainly interesting. But that's a good segue to the next question, which is all about myths. I love talking about myths on this show because there just seems to be a lot of myths around EVs from, hey, am I going to get electrocuted if I have an EV in the rain to like, I don't know, all kinds of like crazy off the wall things. You have a perspective on this too, is there's sort of a myth that we as consumers create for ourselves about how much range we really need. You know, we're at a point where a lot of vehicles have pretty large battery packs to provide people with range of, you know, 350, 400 miles, et cetera. And that's definitely useful for the occasional road trip. But I think a lot of that is informed by people not quite understanding that if you are privileged enough to live in a residence that has overnight charging, you're leaving your garage most days with a full charge. And so the number of days per year that you're like, I'm gonna drive 400 miles today and not even take a break for a meal or whatever is a little bit of probably over-resourcing what you need. And, and so I, I think I do have some concerns that as an industry, we're like equipping cars with battery packs. And, and by the way, like there's an opportunity cost to that very large battery pack. It could also go into you know, a, another smaller EV could go into battery storage for your home, whatever, like we're using a pretty, you know, that sort of resource of the future and cramming a lot of them into cars where you go, do people really need 450 miles of EV range? Or is that more of like emotional security and not actual range that they use all that often, especially now as so many more vehicles are equipped with capability for, for pretty high charge rates and the public charging infrastructure has a lot of DC fast charging available. I have another myth about public charging that's one that we need to work on or a reality we need to work on. So that's that's one is that like, you know, we we're probably need to work with consumers on this myth of like, I need to own an EV that's got 400, 450 miles of range because that's probably paying too much. It's sort of like being a, a house seeker and you're a couple with one child and you're like, I want a six bedroom house. And it's like, do you really need a six bedroom house? Or could you have like a two to three bedroom house and grow into a six bedroom house in time. Just one. And I think another is, you know, if we think about sort of making this whole transportation system sustainable, I'm not sure that more EVs is always the answer. And sometimes it's different, you know, solutions. So an example, my sort of least favorite EV on the market is probably the GMC Hummer. I'm just not sure we need like giant, giant vehicles all the time that we electrify again, like with really large battery packs. And I do think one misconception is, is that, you know, just electrifying all these vehicles will solve our challenges. 
We've got other challenges. It relates to battery resources. It relates to congestion in cities. It relates to a whole bunch of other things where I do think we need to rethink what's the right balance in cities between cars, public transit, walking, biking. And so I'm a big proponent of the idea of a federal tax credit for electric bikes. There's a lot of people's trips in cities that we take via cars that could be replaced by other form factors. Sort of my my classic example there is, you know, food delivery. When you're getting a two to three pound meal delivered to your home, I'm not sure that a 4,000 pound vehicle is the most efficient form factor for getting that pizza from point A to point B. There's probably a much lighter vehicle that can deliver that, you know, sushi or pizza or whatever to your to your home. So, you know, there's a myth that sort of like every person, whether they live in urban, rural or whatever in, in America should have a car to get from point A to point B. And that's pretty true, I would argue, in rural and a lot of suburban communities. But there's a lot of urban and some suburban communities where you go, actually, owning a car you know, is probably not the best way to get around. We probably got to invest in solutions that make it easier for people to get around our cities with lighter vehicles, whether that be two or three wheels, you know, whether that be an e-bike or whatever. So that's something that I think we need a lot more sort of public policy attention on. But also innovators coming up with like the next breakthrough that goes, oh, okay, I used to ride the bird scooters, but now I have an additional solution that I like that's more permanent and reliable. So that's a sort of a a myth of sorts to deal with. And I think the last one is we're getting over the myth of public charging infrastructure of you just install the asset and everything else will work out over time. That's not really the case. I definitely think those who've owned EVs know the experience of feeling like sort of working uh, sort of workplace charging and home charging generally is reliable. If you've got access to it, you sort of get in a rhythm, you know how it works. You're like, great. I know when I head home or I go to the office, I'll be able to charge. The public charging experience is, is quite different. You know, you, you log onto an app and it tells you, go to this charger, you can go charge. You go and you're like, no, I cannot charge. There's some sort of problem here. The app is inaccurate. The, the screen will not accept this. It won't take my credit card, et cetera. The public charging experience is one where there's probably a lot of a lot of resources that are out there, but that are offline for various reasons. Having anything to do with hard system resets, software updates, you know, the end of the 3G support for a lot of wireless connectivity. And it's a challenge we're all going to have to address because, you know, nothing sort of torpedoes the would-be EV buyer when their neighbor says, yeah, I had a really crappy experience. I tried to recharge here and I couldn't, so I couldn't make the road trip or whatever. There are startups that are working on that topic. In the Lacey portfolio, there's a company called Charger Help that really does predictive maintenance and tier one support for EV chargers that allows the charge point operators, the site hosts, et cetera, to say, I'm going to have a maintenance contract. And the minute something goes down, we're going to send an alert to somebody. They're going to roll a truck and they're going to diagnose immediately. Is this a software system? Is this a hard system reboot that's needed? Is it a Wi-Fi connectivity problem, cellular connectivity problem, whatever it might be? So I, you know, I'm excited about businesses like Charger Help because they are solving a very real challenge of the public charging infrastructure, but it's definitely an experience that needs to be improved if we're going to reach people and get them excited about the public charging experience. Because right now it's kind of suboptimal as an experience. You're right, because that one person that tells their neighbor, tells their friend, tells their family member, oh, by the way, I had this horrible experience, then it's like you have to work that much harder to overcome that objection at the sales floor, whatever point of sale, online, brick and mortar, whatever the point of sale happens to be, you're going to have to overcome that objection. And that's never a fun time. So we also know that you will not be purchasing a Hummer anytime or an EV Hummer anytime soon. So we'll just note that in the back of my mind. Um, If the listeners 
would like to connect with you, Alex, where on the interwebs is the best place to connect with you and maybe even get involved with Clean Tech Incubator? One of my gigs is I run a newsletter that's about sustainable mobility. That's actually the title of the newsletter is sustainable mobility. And so that's alexmitchell.substack.com. People can go on there, check out what I write about. I'm sort of writing about this transition, both, you know, what it impacts in terms of startups working on this topic, but also policy angles, et cetera. So that's one way people can reach me, connect me and, and sort of learn what I'm working on. And then Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, just you know, do a Google search and, and get on the website and learn. There's an opportunity for startups to apply to become part of our incubation program. And we also have pretty deep partnerships with corporates and governments. So for folks who work at those entities, they can they can reach out as well. And yeah, that's probably the best way to reach me. And that's it. So I'll make sure that both of those items are in the show notes so people can easily access them. Alex, you've been a joy, a pleasure to have on the show. Again, I feel like you just elevated our conversation about five decibels above where we were going here. So appreciate your time, appreciate your insights. And I look forward to just staying connected with you and just continuing to learn. It's great. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the EVs for Everyone podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review with a comment. We read every single comment, so thank you in advance. If you have an idea for an upcoming episode or you would like to be a guest on the show, go to EVs, the number four, everyone.com slash contact. That's EVs, the number four, everyone.com slash contact. Until next time, Keep charging forward.